Welcome to the National Community Church Podcast. We're thrilled to be able to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Dick Folk. You can find us on national.cc or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Hello, friends. National Community Church, always great to be with you. Did you ever have a moment that changed everything? For me, my earliest recollection, my earliest moment was at the end of August 1945. World War II was over, and our family got on a ship, the SS Gripsholm, a, a Swedish liner, converted a troop ship, and we headed for South India. My parents had sensed the calling to be missionaries. We ended up there in a number of weeks, and the next year, when I was about four and a half, I started school at a British boarding school up in an area called the Nilgiri Hills in Southwest India. What's great about that is that I got to go on a train to get there. It wasn't just a train, it was the particular train still running. It was an old train then, it's well over 100 years old now. This is the engine. It was a narrow gauge, what they call a rack or a cog railway train because the hills were so steep that they had this third rail between the two narrow rails and it would catch and sort of ratchet it to help it up the hill. They used that for gradients that were more than 10%. The locals called it a toy train. It climbed 5,000 feet in about 18 miles. It had this wonderful whimsical name. It was called the Nilgiri, or the Blue Mountain, by translation, the Blue Mountain Express. Hardly. It took three hours to go 18 miles. Average speed, six miles an hour. And when you went, though, you crossed dozens, scores of deep gorges with waterfalls, and there were spectacular views and vistas from vantage points when you stopped to get water on this old steam train, vistas that would take your breath away. And there were fruit trees and animals and wildflowers. And then you ended up in a place like this. It was called Kanur, one of the hill stations that the British used back in the colonial days. What it felt like was heaven on earth. I was in that school for three years, nine months out of the year, and my parents would come to see us once or twice a year because they were 150 miles away and that was a long trek back in the day. I tell you that story to say that the first two chapters of Paul's letter to the Ephesians feels like that to me. This 2,000-year-old letter, for me, feels like that train ride because Paul journals his trip, if you will, his trip with Jesus. He takes us high, he takes us wide, he takes us around bends, he shows us views, he shows us God's creation and his purposes and his mercy and his riches, the fact that we were lost and then found. Paul paints this with broad strokes, bold colors. He tells us what Jesus of Nazareth, Christ Jesus the Messiah, has done heavenly realms and unseen forces at work, overwhelming centuries of tradition and culture and beliefs and distances between groups of people. Paul tells us all this. He, he, he reminds us about it. Just in the last chapter, he kept saying, remember, remember. And, and he brings us in these first two chapters, the hope of bridging differences, crossing the chasm and the categories. And he zeroes in on the chosen people, of which he's a part, 
versus everyone else called Goyim or Gentile, of which I'm a part and maybe a bunch of you. I loved it last week when Heather talked about the twist in the plot. I quote Heather. She said, I'm, I'm reaching for my glasses here, by the way. She says, it's the chosen people of God who are expected to live in peace with these people, Gentiles, who are not circumcised, who do not follow the law, that have the smell of pork on their breath, that do not observe the Sabbath. And Paul says, peace has been made in Christ. Jesus has preached peace to those who are near and those who are afar. He's talking about a whole new deal, whole new community, whole new place. And he uses building terms, construction language, if you will. I think in my imagination that he might very well have the temple of Artemis that sat above Ephesus. It was this huge temple that, that Pastor Mark described in the first week, and it was full of pagan practices and promiscuity and perversion. And Paul sees a different building. He doesn't see a pagan temple filled with death and debauchery. What he sees is a living temple, redeemed, transformed people, every tribe and nation, a community of peace and life. That's what he has been articulating in the first two chapters on that journey. And now we get to chapter 3, verse 1, and Paul, what's the word? Digresses. That's the word that one of the commentators that I was reading said. It, it happens, you know, and some of you who are a bit older, you get this. My son-in-law, Van, who's married to our eldest daughter, Erica, some years ago, he said, Pop, because I like stories, he said, Pop, you have a brain like one of those old jukeboxes. If you were, some of you remember Happy Days with the Fonz, where you go over and you put in a quarter and, it, and, it, and you get two songs and two 45 RPM records come around and they drop one after another into the slot and you get whatever song. And Van would say to me, Pop, I say a word and your mind does that. It swings that record around and drops down a story. I think that's, that's what's happening here with Paul, one of those moments. He's on this sweep talking about the kingdom and then he sort of sits back and reflects about who he is and how he got to this moment in time. He, a little like the Blue Mountain Express pausing to take on water and see when you look out in one of those stops forever. When you stop there at a place like this and a place like this in particular, you get to see forever. So Ephesians 3, 1 says it this way, for this reason, the reason he was just talking about the building of the building, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. In, in one sentence, you know, we've talked these past weeks about identity, destiny, and then this week and next week about authority. In one sentence, he captures that for himself. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. This was the guy who just a few decades ago had one goal, and that was to take prisoners on that road above the Golan Heights, heading toward Damascus way back then. It was about noontime, and Acts 9 tells the story of what happened. He was chasing the people who followed that Jesus person, the imposter, the poser, the one, one more fake Messiah in his mind, because he was steeped in his culture and his religious traditions and his faith. And on his way to capture people who follow Jesus, <laughs> he, 
he gets captured. And when he gets captured, he'll say stuff like this. It looks like I'm a prisoner of the Romans sitting here in this jail writing this letter. What I really am is the prisoner. Definite article. I am the prisoner of Christ Jesus. It's very interesting, that designation, because mostly we say he's Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, or Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But Paul, in a number of his writings, flips it and puts Christ, the title, the office, first, Messiah, the anointed one. Uh, I had a professor in college who had a theory about that. I don't know if it's right, but it's interesting. He said, because Paul met Jesus so dramatically as the Messiah on the road to Damascus, he uses that title first. So he speaks about Christ Jesus. At that moment, on his way to stop the nonsense, he got knocked down by a light brighter than the noonday sun. He is struck blind. He's blind for three days, 72 hours. He doesn't eat or drink. He has to be led by the hand into Damascus. And God, in his infinite ways of working, because he's got his people everywhere, those followers of the way, those followers of Christ Jesus, they're all over, all around the world in countries and cities and villages and boroughs. And, and he has one of those in Damascus, more than one. This one's name is Ananias. And Ananias has this, I keep looking for my glasses. <laughs> Ananias gets this word from the Lord. Acts 9, chapter 11. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord answered Ananias, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument. See, Paul thought he was chosen. He was part of the chosen people. But this is more particular. This is the prisoner of Christ Jesus. He is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house, entered it, placed his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul. <laughs> I love that part. Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up, was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. You see, the scales fell off of his physical eyes in some ways, but way more than that happened. In that moment in time, he began to see forever. 180 degrees, turnaround. He found out, who am I? Why am I here? Where do I find my power? All in that one moment, in that one frame of reference. It goes on to say in Acts 9.20, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Is it, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? Hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful 
and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. What could compare to this 180 degree turnaround today? I mean, like what? Somebody switching parties? I don't think so. Somebody going from pauper to prince? Well, that's getting better. How about, I once was blind, but now I see? That's good. That moment became a springboard for the rest of Paul's life. You never forget those moments when life shows up. Uh, we feel it in these verses in chapter 3. You have moments like that. When something happened, something was resurrected, some blindness in your view of life was eradicated. For me, of course, and you've heard me talk about this a lot, it was seven years ago when Ruth, who suffered sudden cardiac death or you know, rhythmic uh, heart failure up in Estes Park, Colorado, about an hour from where I'm talking to you, when she was in a coma, we didn't know that she would live or ever wake up, and she did within short order. And it was, it was her coming back that was so profound. I will never forget my feelings. I'll never forget that moment. But there was another moment. Uh, she was in the hospital for about 10 days after that in rehab because once your brain takes that kind of an insult, you know, it takes a while for eye-hand coordination, all that kind of stuff. She had to learn to walk just in that short time frame. But we were sitting watching her eat because when somebody comes back like that and you're so happy and it's so fresh, it's like watching a, a one-year-old. You know, you can turn off your TV, just watch a one-year-old, and it's pretty interesting. And uh, she was there, and she was eating a little soup and some bread. And so the kids and I were sitting around just looking at her, trying to have conversations. And she reached out and took a piece of bread, started to put it in her mouth, and hit her chin, and it dropped into her lap. And she looked down and grinned and said, oh, you old fumble fingers. And then she looked up at the rest of us sitting around, and she said, but... I did just come back from the dead. <laughs> I said, yes, I remember that moment. I remember another moment 50 years earlier when I was trying to get up the courage, and you've heard me share this, but I don't care, I'm gonna share it again. 50 years earlier, I was trying to get up the courage to tell her I loved her. My parents' deal was coming apart, their marriage, so I was very hesitant to use the L word because I thought if you went there, you're in, it's over and all that. And. Uh, she had a good sense for things. She's not a person of a lot of words spoken, but she has some very powerful words written, and she sent me a card, and she just had written these words in Elizabethan English that went something like this. Well, not something, exactly like this. Ask for my white-gloved hand, the hills to pearl will turn, the sand to diamonds. Ask for my lips to kiss, each star the setting of a diadem shall be. But ask for my love, and heaven to earth shall come. My love be thine. And I read that, and I said, uh, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> there are moments when heaven comes to earth, when resurrection life shows up, when scales fall from our eyes. So here, in chapter 3, verse 1, is that pivoting moment. And as he gets past that phrase about prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, or, or a prisoner of Christ Jesus, Paul starts stacking truth upon truth and concept upon concept. And I'm, I only have these first few verses, but, but next week, I think it's Pastor Josh is going to be talking to us about those other verses. And Paul is on a roll. It's like that train 
heading downhill at way faster than six miles per hour. This is where he gets to by verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. And I'm saying, yes, you know, I mean, it's, if his pen had sound, it would be shouting by the time he got to that verse. Anyway, you'll hear that next week. I digress, just like Paul. Ephesians 3, 2 and 3. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me, or given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. He said it before, my mission is toward you. Please hear me. Please get this, he says. I have been given a special grace, a special arena of management and stewardship, and it's that I'm telling you Gentiles that you're not afar off. I'm telling you that you don't have to be Jewish, that we're both going to be this something else called the church. In short, he says, you're in the legacy, you're in the will, so just hear that. Although I'm less than the least, verse 8, of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. You say, we already heard that. We heard it in the last chapter. We're hearing it again. Yeah, and you're hearing it again. Things that are important, people say over and over and over again. And it, he's saying it isn't just that Gentiles can be redeemed through Christ Jesus, but God is making a whole new thing, his church. And he, he connects it this way. It, the riches of this thing are untraceable. They're boundless riches, is his language. They're inexhaustible. They're past finding out. In short, you can't get your head around it. It's such a profound thought and truth. Ephesians 3, 10 to 12. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. There's that, heaven, that heavenly part again. According to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Manifold's an interesting word. It means variety of colors. You know, we have these sunsets here in Colorado that really are spectacular. We're at 5,000 feet, the air is clear. And more than one night, Ruth, who makes quilts and uses pastels and bold colors and patterns, and she's a gardener and works with roses, she'll look out at a Colorado sunset and say, how does God put those colors next to each other? How does he do that? And it looks right. It's great how he does that. Well, it's his manifold wisdom that looks like that. All these pieces coming together you never thought could work and they do when his spirit is in it. And then he goes on to say in the same text that this should be made known to authorities and rulers in the heavenly realms. He comes, Paul comes from this backdrop of understanding that there are powers at work, both good and bad, out there beyond us in some way. And even though I don't fully comprehend that, uh, a commentator by the name of Wiest said this, through the church, the angels can see the mystery of redemption. They're not redeemed creatures. So the church becomes university for the angels, every saint a professor. I love that thought. And the opposite powers that are at work, they see that their territory is being taken away. 
that darkness is being destroyed by light, that death is being destroyed by life. Paul preaches, power is unleashed, God creates his church. Powers can't understand it, they only see it demonstrated. Ephesians 3.12, in him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I like this freedom and confidence part. Literally it means freedom of speech. You want freedom of speech? Right here. Say anything you want to God. Thank him, petition him, ask him, rail at him. Some of us have cursed him and here we are. We weren't vaporized in that moment because he understands we don't see clearly. He understands that his spirit needs to transform us to see who he really is. I ask you therefore, verse 13, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This temporary inconvenience, pain and privation, it's for you. That's how it is. So because I'll do anything to get this message to you Gentiles, Paul says, I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere, sit in any prison, suffer death, just so you can hear me clearly. And in that, hopefully begin seeing clearly. So twice a year, our folks, my sister and I were in that school, our folks would come to that school and my dad would tell the folks down at the front area that he was there and they would send somebody for me. I lived in a little area with small boys. It was called the bird's nest. And I knew my dad was there. My dad was a big guy. My dad was almost 6'3", 240, good looking dude. I don't know what happened to this generation, it skipped, but, but he had a full head of hair and just wonderful man. And, and I would start on my short little legs racing down that driveway. And we had a game that we played where I would leap into his arms and he would hug me. Then he'd grab me by my legs and I'm standing up this way. He'd grab me by my calves and he'd lift me up over his head. And when you're only two feet tall or two and a half feet and somebody lifts you up that high, so you're like 15 or however high it would be. Anyway, it's way high. What happens is that before you were looking at this and all of a sudden in your little face, things light up because you can see forever. That's how it is. My question to you today is would you like that, to see forever, to have a vantage point from where God stands if you're in a place where you say, I'm in a dark place, I'm in a place where what I understand is obscured, I'm weighed down by all the junk and the garbage and the baggage that I carry, maybe you're not in that particular place, but you say, I just need to be free by becoming grasped by the Most High, like Paul. If you need that, if you need the scales gone, I'd like to encourage you this morning just to have you click that raise hand button. If you're watching online with us, or if you're watching on demand or on Vimeo or Vimeo or YouTube, you can click the follow Jesus button and fill out the form. So glad, so glad to take you on a journey, not on the Blue Mountain Express, but on the grace of Jesus Christ that takes us to a place where we really do see forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this moment in time, for your grace, for the mercy that abounds, for the boundless riches of your manifold wisdom. Thank you, Lord, that you find us in the silliest, saddest places, 
hiding behind our guilts and our successes, sometimes railing against you like Saul did, and you tag us and say, you, you're it. You, you literally in our spirits knock us down so we can stand up and be whole and new and a redeemed people. Thank you, Lord, for your grace in this moment. We love you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. See you soon, I hope.